Well, it is a pleasure to be amongst you today and a privilege to come and preach God's Word. And I would also like to bring the greetings of your brothers and sisters in our congregation, the Free Church now in Brote Ferry. My wife and I at this time are actually preparing to move house quite soon. And one of the things about ministers is that usually you have hundreds of books. And it's a case of trying to reduce and get rid of. And that's a very difficult thing for people who love books. There is one particular set of books that I am absolutely sure that I would be very reluctant to part with, and this is volume one of it. It's a series of studies of Bible characters by Alexander White, D.D., minister of the Free St. George's Church in Edinburgh. And actually this one, this is one of six volumes of the original publication in 1896. Maybe it's valuable, I don't know. But it is valuable, actually, in all sorts of ways. Now, of course, the Bible is principally about God. God is the subject of the Bible. But it's also true that we learn a great deal about God and about the way of God from the people whose stories are recorded here. And there's a, a, a dictionary of the church which says about Dr. Alexander White's ministry in Edinburgh, it, it talks about him as uh, having gained a reputation as a graphic and compelling preacher to an extent probably unparalleled even in a nation of preachers. And after his death, a former assistant wrote, apparently the simplest of men, he was yet also the shrewdest in his judgments, and you took your life in your hand when you went to hear him preach. His Old Testament and New Testament characters lived and walked the streets of Edinburgh in glory and in shame, and the Edinburgh people discovered that it was themselves that he was talking about under the ancient Hebrew names. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11 tells us, actually, about the, event, the events recorded in Scripture. These things were written down for our instruction. And the stories of these Bible characters from yesterday can teach us what it is to trust and obey the Lord today. Some of the stories, as we know, are edifying. Some are not. Some characters are hailed as heroes, while others are villains, really. Sometimes we're to learn to be like the people that are described here. Sometimes we are warned not to be like them. Some of them are what we might call front-page characters. Some are not. But they all have their part to play in this great drama of God's plan as given to us in Scripture. Today, I'd like to look at the story of Lot. Perhaps not one of the front page characters of the Bible. A person whose story really is overshadowed by that of his uncle, Abraham, supremely the man of faith. Lot's story is very different from that of his uncle and being a simple kind of guy, I would like just to ask you to follow me in three simple things about Lot, namely his good beginning, his bad choice, and his spoiled life. As simple as that. And let me set the scene for it by means of a little story that I sometimes use about a rich old lady who lived in a grand house which was situated at the top of a hill 
to which there was a winding road that led. And at some points on this road, there was no barrier or anything, no crash barrier. And she wanted to employ someone to be her chauffeur. There were three applicants for the job, and she would ask them each the same question. If you were my driver, and you were driving me up this windy road to the house here, how close could you come to the edge of the roadway, and I would still be safe in your hands? The first one said, I could drive within a yard of the, side, the, the roadside, and you would be perfectly safe. The second one said, oh, I, I could go within a foot of the edge without any danger of us toppling over. And the third one, to whom she put the same question, said, if I were your driver, I would keep as far away from the edge of the cliff as I possibly could. Which one got the job? I don't think there's very much doubt about it. It's really a story about temptation and about sin. With some people, it is, how near to the edge of the cliff can I go without actually falling right into sin, while, of course, the Bible encourages us to keep as far away from it as possible. And that passage that I mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10 also says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man, but God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure under it. So let's think, first of all, about a good beginning. Lot's story begins where Abraham's story begins, really, and it's just before the bit that we read in Genesis chapter 11 and verse 31, where Terah set out from Ur of the Chaldees on that journey that would eventually take them to Canaan. They settled in Haran, where Terah died, And in chapter 12 and verse 4, we find Abraham responding to God's call. It says, Abraham was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abraham took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. Now, usually we look at this story from the point of view of Abraham. Abraham was the man who had this tremendous sense of God leading him, even although he didn't know where it was all going to lead to. And his nephew, Lot, well, he must have had some kind of commitment to that, at least to go along with him. I wonder, maybe he never had such a clear sense of God's guidance as Abraham did, but he was happy to go along with his uncle. And here is actually one quotation from uh, Alexander White in his study of the character of Lot, where he says this, had Lot just held on as he began, had he kept close to Abraham, and had he been content to share Abraham's prospects and prosperity and peace Lot would have lived a pure and happy life. He would have escaped many sorrows. And instead of being scarcely saved, saved indeed, but saved with the fire and brimstone of Sodom and Gomorrah smoldering in his skirts, he would have gone down to a truly patriarchal grave, an elder of a good report and a father of a blameless name. But sadly, of course, he didn't go on as he started It was a good beginning, but what a tragedy that such early promise went unfulfilled. 
I don't know, would there have been a degree of youthful enthusiasm at one time? Although actually, I don't suppose Lot would have been very young. I mean, his uncle Abraham was 75 after all. But uh, as the years went by, instead of going onwards and upwards, it was a more a case of going downwards. There's an old hymn that uses the metaphor, tell me the story often, for I forget so soon. The early dew of morning has passed away at noon. And that's something that we all know about, isn't it? In summertime, you, you go out early and there's the dew on the grass, but by midday it has evaporated in the sun. And I wonder, does that strike a chord with anyone? Can you look back to a time when, when your commitment, your zeal for the cause of Christ, for his, for his name's sake, was a much more vibrant and living thing than it is now? But somehow, with one thing and another, that earlier promise has gone unfulfilled. And you would have to admit that now, your position now, is not what it once was. Here in the story of Lot is a wake-up call. Lot's story is indeed a warning. For what sadder thing is there than the spiritual mediocrity of people who started out with a great commitment and zeal, but it just faded away? That's one thing, a good beginning. But then we come on to the main thing, I suppose, about the story of Lot, namely his bad choice. Chapter 13, verse 5, Lot also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together. And then you've got Abraham there as, a, as an example of generosity. Verse 8, let there be no strife between you and me and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left, I will go to the right. If you take the right, I will go to the left. And the end of verse 11 says, they separated from each other. And you might say, between the lines, I in more ways than one. In fact, maybe before this point, they had really parted company in terms of the direction in which their lives were living. Billy Graham wrote somewhere about two Scottish brothers called John and David. John set his mind on making money, and he made a lot of it. But under his name, in an encyclopedia, the entry simply says, Brother of David Livingstone. Well, I don't know actually much about John Livingstone, and of course there's nothing wrong with being successful and wealthy. But it's quite a contrast, isn't it, between one who set out with that great goal in life to become rich, and his brother David with his passion for the social, moral, spiritual good of the people of Africa. Bear some analogy to the contrast between Lot and Abraham. Verse 11 starts with the words, So Lot chose. Now in the English language, what's the, what part of speech is the word so? It can be a conjunction or it can be an adverb, Right? It can mean just simply a consequence, the, the next thing, so somebody did such and such. But I, I, in another way, I wonder if, it, if this really means so. 
in this way, with this motivation, Lot made his choice. A choice that I'm going to describe as a selfish choice and a dangerous choice. First of all, it was a selfish choice because, well, what do we read? In what way did he make his choice? By seeking the best deal for himself. Simple as that, wasn't it? Abraham, with his after you, was the generous one. I mean, presumably, he could have pulled rank as the older man, the uncle, the one who had responded to God's call to set out, not knowing where, he was, where it was all going to lead, but he gave way to Lot. And Lot had no scruples, apparently, about choosing what was best for him. Should he be blamed? Would anyone else have done differently? Would we? Remember Jesus' word in the parable of the rich fool. Somebody had asked him, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And part of Jesus' response, you'll know the words, I'm sure, take care and be on your guard against all kinds of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And it's, we, we know it as the parable of the rich fool. Or remember again G, uh, Paul's word in First uh, Timothy 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world and we cannot take anything out of it. And it says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And it even says there, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, as we've said, of course it isn't sinful to be wealthy, to, to be successful, to be well off, and so on. But the Bible continually tells us it may not be wrong, but it is dangerous. Let me pause for a moment to share with you uh, something from a circular that my wife received some time ago. It was a, a, an advert for one of these shopping catalogs, you know, the, the kind of thing that we get. I'm sure you've seen them as well, but I'm sure that you cannot possibly be loved by this company as much as my wife is. And I kept the note. It said, Dear Mrs. Randall, a, review of our, a recent review of our customer records indicates that you have not placed an order for seven months. This has concerned me, and I have circulated a customer feedback report to the relevant departments asking for any observations and recommendations for restoring your excellent customer status. And, and, and there it was, with, with a, a you know, like handwritten, looked like a handwritten note as if they were personal friends of, of ours. And uh, one of them was, uh, what was her name, uh, Pat, who wrote, we are concerned that we may lose this valuable customer and we advise offering a free gift with their next order. And then there was Marianne who added, how about a discount offer and so on. We really felt as if we know these people. And what was it all about? They wanted us to receive, and I quote, a new kind of catalogue for people who want it all, want it now, and want it on their terms. Well, could there be a more crass 
statement of modern consumerism. For people who want it all, want it now, and want it on their terms. Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, was Lot. That was his choice. He looked and he saw what, what offered him the best prospects. And despite the fact that he was driving far too close to the edge of the cliff, there he made his choice, verse 12, to settle among the cities of the valley, moved his tent as far as Sodom. And it says, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And that's the second thing about Lot's choice. First, it was a selfish choice. And then secondly, it was a dangerous choice. Dangerous spiritually and morally. I mean, that statement, the men of Sodom, what does it say? The men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. Presumably indicates, although it's not actually spelled out really, that that was well known. And in choosing to settle near and then in Sodom, Lot was putting himself and his family into a situation that would endanger their spiritual and moral well-being. Now, we know, this is a, we all know, this is a fallen world, and there are many ungodly things, many sinful things in this world, and you cannot get away from that. You cannot remove yourself from this world with all its sinful influences, like that uh, there was an American college once that advertised itself as seven miles from, the, the, from any known form of sin. <laughs> Presumably meaning there weren't any pubs or brothels or drink, uh, gambling, you know, all that sort of thing anywhere near. But you can't get seven miles away from sin, can you? Because as, as Muriel was sharing earlier, it's inside us and it's in here the effects of the world's rebellion against its maker that has affected absolutely everything. It was indeed a dangerous choice. Here was a man who was given a choice and who coolly decided to place himself and his family in a place renowned for its vice and immorality because indeed haven't the names of Sodom and Gomorrah lived on as symbols of places given over to wickedness. And that's, that's not the subject that we're going to deal with just now. But the later story... Genesis chapter 19, terrible, X-rated stuff reveals something of how wicked the place was. Or we should say how wicked the people were. You know how we sometimes say it's not, the, it's not that the world is a dreadful world, it's, it's the problems with the people in the world. Did Lot think that he would keep above it all? I don't know. Uh, it says... But is it verse 12? He settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. The NIV has it pitched his tents near Sodom. Not in it, but near it. And maybe he didn't intend really to be sucked into the wickedness. But then if you fast forward to chapter 19, we find him sitting in the gate of Sodom. What does that mean, sitting in the gate of Sodom? That means he has become a man of some distinction in the community. He's become part of the place. He's in Sodom. And, of course, that chapter tells of his disgraceful offer 
of his daughters to the wicked men of the town, to be followed by the awful story of his daughters who must have imbibed so much of the wicked ethos of the town, getting lot drunk and incestuously fathering children by him. Story which has been described as so depraved that it is not fit for decent lips, a miserable outcome, surely, of a life that began in a noble journey of faith. And the same writer describes Lot's choice in this way. With Lot, the main business was to get on, to be near the markets, to secure good positions for his family and rich young men to marry his daughters. What would become of his religious life and theirs in that hell of temptation was a question he put aside. Men like Lot, whose religion is on the surface, do not allow these considerations to weigh with them. These are challenging words. How do we make our decisions in life? Would it be true to say that there are many people who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ, and yet they make their decisions in a way no different from anybody else in this world? And there's the challenge from this ancient story of Lot. Lot made a selfish choice. That catalogue advert that I was referring to appeals to the self-centered element in human beings for those who want it all, want it now, and want it on their own terms. And as I've suggested, there could hardly be a more crass reflection of the me-first attitude of a fallen world. Jesus' way, well, it's so different, isn't it? Remember his words about loving your neighbor, loving your enemy, denying yourself, and putting others first. And then, of course, as we said, it was a dangerous choice. He walked with open eyes into a situation where he and his family were going to be surrounded by things that were wicked and vile. As we've said, you can't avoid contact with a sinful world And of course, Jesus calls us to live our lives as stars shining in a dark world. No doubt about that. There's no way that we can cocoon ourselves or our families. And the more more society drifts away from the ways of God and descends into sinful and immoral ways, the more challenging it's going to be to let that light shine. But to be in the world is one thing to deliberately walk into situations where the pool of sin is going to be so strong is another thing. Do you know that old story about the person who told a doctor uh, that he had broken his leg in three different places and the doctor's simple advice was, well, you better avoid these places. (laughs) Well, maybe there are places that we need to avoid for the good of our own soul, for the good of our families, for the good of our witness to other people. Instead of seeing how far you can drive to the edge of the road, the the cliff, keep as far away from it as possible. A good start, a bad choice. And the other thing, of course, at the end of Lot's story is a spoiled life. He settled near Sodom, it says first. Then he lived in it and maybe never intended to be dragged down. Maybe he even came to regret the choice that he made. And in fact, maybe, maybe that's the implication of the reference to him 
which is a wee bit puzzling in a way, in Second Peter 2 and 8, where it says there that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over the lawless deeds that he saw and heard. And you, you read that and you say, righteous man? I mean, how do we reconcile that with this grim picture of Genesis 19 of a man who, uh, entertaining visitors, and when his neighbors demanded these visitors be surrendered for a sort of homosexual gang rape, really, actually, almost too wicked to speak of, he says, let me bring my virgin daughters out to you instead. Righteous man? Well, perhaps it is simply that to start with, Lot was a godly man, and things went on in Sodom that did shock him. Maybe all of that on the one side, and that's the side emphasized in that text in Second Peter. But on the other side, and that's the side emphasized in the story in Genesis, gradually the things of Sodom got a hold on Lot, and he was dragged down and down and ended up far, far away from where he started. And isn't that true to life? I, I don't suppose that there are many people who actually decide that they will live lives of wickedness and rebellion against God, but no doubt it's more often just a gradual slide until people can end up doing things that once would have shocked them. And it's a challenge, a challenge to us all from this ancient story. Are, are, there, are there things that we now accept in our lives, or perhaps in our thinking, that once would have filled us with horror? If so, what has changed? Have right and